This is the Dallas Morning News. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant and David Moore. Fellas, we're all back home. Nobody's on the road. Uh, the Cowboys have lost a winnable game. The Rangers are the world champions. Uh, other than that, what else is going on in the world? Anything? <laughs> just typical, typical November. Yeah, just a typical November around here, right? Happens once every 51 uh, years, two years, something like that. Uh, same old stuff. Um, is everybody... Uh, the baseball What was it? baseball town now yeah it's baseball state you know uh of the last 14 world series seven have been occupied by a team from texas how about that half half of the last 14 there you go how about that is i I looked i looked it up i made sure you know the only state that comes close is california they had six in that over that same time period so uh, the giants and the dodgers have all those um if you go back a little further than that, the Angels had one, but we're not going back that far. Because um, we could also claim the the Astros from 2005 when they got swept by the White Sox, which was almost like they weren't in the World Series, but it it, it did officially count uh, as a uh, an appearance. So it's a baseball state, baby. Uh, no football, you know, all kinds of stuff are happening in this state now, baseball-wise. and. We're going to claim it for now until the until the Cowboys. Well, that's why we're starting with the Cowboys on today's podcast. Exactly, because it's now a baseball state. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's nothing to say about baseball. Everything's perfect in baseball. It's, it's all that's resolved. right. That's right. Thumbs up. Just big thumbs up. No, the Cowboys always, you know, uh, wrangle themselves up to the front of the bar. You know, they always manage to do that. They and they did that. By losing a completely winnable game against the Eagles on the road on on Sunday, David, that, you know, I'm watching that game uh, from my couch, and uh, and here they are, they're getting all these penalties, and they get the ball down there all the way down the field without even doing anything, basically, and they're in prime position to win that game, and then they, of course, stuck it in reverse, and and then lost. Um, you know, I, I have to tell you that reminded me a little bit of. Uh, of Dak's very unfortunate ending to the 49ers playoff game uh, from two seasons ago, uh, in which he kind of just lost track of time. And in this one, there were several instances in that game. And of course, one of the things that happened among the many things that went wrong in the last few seconds uh, was just didn't get the playoff. I got to tell you, David, <clears throat> as many great things as, as Dak did in that game, and I thought that's as good as he's looked all year long. He just executed the offense, no turnovers. It all looked really good. But, you know, part of the deal is, is just getting plays off. And, you know, and I don't know how much of that was the problem getting in the play from the sideline or not, but at some point the quarterback has to take over the play and say, here we go. And, and they were right on the verge 
of that several times. I know my, I can always feel my blood pressure going up as I'm watching that clock tick down and Dax pawing the turf like some, you know, thoroughbred back there, kicking that foot up and down. It's like, it, it reminded me of when Tony Romo was the quarterback of the Cowboys and every single play went down to the last split second uh, before he snapped the ball. Yeah, the, I, you know, that game encapsulated a lot, right? It, it's that the Cowboys are pretty close. They're just right there uh, to winning these big games against the best teams in the league. Uh, but they come up on the other side, and Dak makes some big plays late in those games to put them in position to win, but doesn't seem to make the play that allows them to win. So, you know, I, I think it I think it captured it all. Um, you know, uh truly a game of inches. I know that's trite, but but this certainly was. You know, Dallas had two touchdowns called back in the fourth quarter of a game in which they were constantly attacking all game and and, and made this uh, you know, look, I thought it was wildly entertaining. Uh, I, I thought it showed that there's really not much separation between these two teams and they can compete. But it also reinforced that at this moment, with nine games left in the regular season, that San Francisco and Philadelphia are the two best teams in the conference and the Cowboys exist on the level after that. Now they have nine regular season games to uh, try to alter that packing order, but it's pretty clear right now where they are. But, you know, it was interesting because the players came out of this game. Uh, it was certainly a much different feel than coming out of the San Francisco game, right? Uh, that one, they were devastated. They were clearly had to question whether or not they, they stacked up. This one, they're more mad at themselves going like, well, no, we stacked up. In fact, we should have won on the road and we didn't. That's on us. If we just clean up a few things, uh, let's see what happens when we meet them again in five weeks. But I'll also say that's that's part of being a division rival as well. You know, uh, Dallas-Philly is, is one of the better rivalries in the NFL, has been over the last five, six, seven years. And Dallas, no matter what the situation, Dallas always has a belief it can beat Philadelphia. And Philadelphia always has a belief it can beat Dallas. And these two teams kind of go back and forth, and I, there's not much separation in them, uh, regardless of how the season stacks up. So it's going to be a very interesting and entertaining rematch. Going into the season, uh, I think anyone would have been said that, well, if you just split with Philadelphia, that's a reasonable expectation. Um, and, and that still leaves you in a position to do what you want to do during the regular season in your seating, but you at least have to do that. The Cowboys still have a chance to do that. All of that being said, if you only won one of these games, I think it was better for Dallas to win this one on the road to really tighten this race up and make the next few weeks a lot more interesting because the Eagles have a very difficult stretch coming up in, in Dallas for their next five or at home uh, where they have the longest home winning streak in the NFL. And a few of those teams should challenge them in this stretch. So, uh, you know, Dallas, if it could have pulled closer, could have had a lead going into a very difficult December schedule for them. Now, basically, I think they're just hoping they can narrow the gap and, and maybe get close to give themselves a chance in December. Yeah, I, I think that's the, the point about it is that what you said is right. If you thought you could split with the Eagles, that'd be great. Now, the thing is, that's well, everything changes when you have an opportunity to win the game. 
you know, yeah. and, you, and you had the opportunity to win that game. David, I want to ask you a couple of things because I know that, uh, you know, people, uh, Trayvon Diggs and, and Des Bryant and others complained about the officiating. Uh, I, I thought th- that the 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 touchdown that was called back on uh, that Luke Schoonmaker uh, made on the catch, there was two things about that play. Uh, one, the guy was being tackled as he was making the catch. I know we, we kind of said he was diving for the ball. It seemed more to me that he was just being tackled. And so yeah. there's no there's no interference called on that play. And I guess that's what happens. It's it's like Shaq playing, right? You got a tight end up there. You know, uh, it's a big guy. No, there's no interference here. You should have caught that ball. But secondly, the, the, the thing about that play that they got me was, why wouldn't you run that play into the end zone? Why are you running it and you're making your cut right on the goal line that this seems to happen quite a bit, not just with the Cowboys, but with lots of teams where receivers don't go beyond the sticks to make their catches. They come back, you know, I know you're, you got to come back to the ball and all of that, but that's not a play where you're coming back to the ball. That's a play where you have to have a little bit of a sense of where you are, just like Dak needed to have a better sense of where he was when he went for the two point conversion and stepped out of bounds. It didn't really step out. I mean that was a that was a pretty big step out. It wasn't like it was close. And he was looking at the and he's looking at the pylon instead of where his foot was at that point. Both cases where you, you have to have a better sense of where you are on the field. Yeah, on that one I, I would say he was looking at the pylon, but he also saw the guy uh had launched for him and so he was trying to factor that in and kind of lost exactly uh where he was, how close he was. But on the touchdown uh, that was not a touchdown because the knee came down right outside. Yeah, you can, you know, Cowboys fans can focus on, well, he was being tackled. It should have been interference. Uh, Some can even say, well, you know, he had Brandon Cooks open on the other side. He could have gone there. Uh, So why did he pick, you know, why did he pick that? But my understanding of that play was, they were perfectly fine on the pre-read uh, that both uh, Schoonmaker and Cooks on the pre-read, based on what they were calling, would have a chance for the ball. And he just he chose Schoonmaker because it's a little bit easier throw to make in that situation than where Cooks would have been. Uh, it, but to me, it all gets back to a young player not precisely running his route because you're exactly right. Just another step. We're not talking about much off in precision, but just another step into the end zone. That's not a question, right? That's a touchdown and it completely alters the dynamic of the game uh, coming as early as it did in the fourth quarter. So um, Mike McCarthy even acknowledged that in his Monday press conference that, you know, yeah, that is the route should have been, run just a little deeper, but this is a a young player who needs to be in these situations, get a feel for it. And he's not the sort of guy to make that mistake twice. So it was a, it was a valuable learning experience, uh, I would say for him, but it's one that hurt them. So do you guys feel like then based on what took place and what Mike McCarthy said, that this learning experience a, that there will be a chance later in the year to apply it, and that B, it will be applied. Because what I get out of this, and again, I, you know, everything I see through a baseball mind, not through week to week football mind, what I get out of it is this is a team with championship aspirations. It's got a play to make to win a winnable game on the road. 
why are they putting it in the hands of or or trying to put it in the hands of a young player who is capable of making those kinds of mistakes? Yeah, and that and that's always what you wrestle with, right? You, you want to incorporate. I mean, they took him in the second round for a reason. They considered him to be a red zone threat for them. Uh, upgrade their receiving capabilities. Um, he has. They go to him infrequently. He has probably given the return on investment more than he is not in the in the small amount of work they have given him. Um, yeah, I mean, ideally you want to give it to him and you don't have the learning experience, right? He does it perfectly and you win the game and then you say, well, look, now we have an infusion of young talent that's going to make us even better from last year. These young guys are contributing. So it's it's kind of that wrestling match that a coach gets into all the time about developing young players, but you can't develop them at the expense of victories, especially in a in a 17-game season. Um that that you know the thing is there they had enough other mistakes where you can't say it was strictly on Schoonmaker, but that play would have made a huge difference. And and now the question is, okay, now you've had a mistake like that in a key situation. You can talk about him learning from it, but what did Dak learn from it? Did Dak say, Well, I don't feel comfortable going to him again in this position, so I'm going to go somewhere else. So then what good does that learning experience do you? Uh, they, they tend to say, look, this is, a, this is a draft and develop team now, as we hear time and time again, and I think they're willing to uh, absorb some of these mistakes to try to develop guys at this stage of the season. Uh but they're not going to in December. I think when the schedule turns to December, you've either established yourself as you can contribute to the stretch run or you haven't. So I think the the Cowboys are still right there. Now, Schoonmaker is still kind of on the fence, right, on whether or not you can trust him uh, in, in the stretch run for this rookie season of his. Yeah, I think the the point that makes is a good one. It's it's not so much that you you, you get the guys involved. Obviously, you want to get them involved. Sure. You, you just don't want to get them involved in a in a key situation in the game. It was like the 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 pass earlier. Uh, I, I'm getting my timing mixed up here. The pass to Tolbert over uh, on an out pattern. It was contested catch. He had just made his break. He wasn't really open. And you're asking Jalen Tolbert, who's really not done nothing so far for the Cowboys, and they're done very little. Uh, to make that catch at that point. And I think, you know, later on, they obviously got more opportunities and it kind of rendered that moot a little bit. Um, but it, it's those kind of situations where you, you go with your stars, you know, and, and unless the guy just all covered up. But, you know, there was at the end of the game, even though the, that completed the pass to CeeDee Lamb, there were four guys right there, you yeah. know. And so, uh, well, because was, that penalty moved him back to the twenty-seven instead of the twenty-two, which is a big difference in that. In that, well, situation. sure. And that's just kind of one thing right after another for the Cowboys. But I, I do, I do think you know it, it is uh, frustrating for Cowboys fans to watch these games and and see you know that Dak play this way. Everything that he, everything good that he did was negated by the how the game ended, and yeah. uh, in in their in their minds. So. So to me, what this game points out once again is that uh, Dak is very capable of of, of of driving this bus, managing the, the the offense, whatever you want to call it. And I don't necessarily think it's that's a bad thing to call it that. I think that you can go to a Super Bowl with that kind of quarterback, uh, but you can't ask Dak to lift you 
uh, in the final moments of a game. I, I just don't – he just hasn't shown enough to do that. I think he can on occasion. I just don't think you can rely on on Dak to pull off something at the end of a game for, to win it for you. And I think that's a uh, a big blot on this team at this point. And, and until he proves otherwise uh, on a consistent basis, uh, that that's going to be – the mo for him i, I want to shift over well, well, that's the thing real quickly right i mean that's the difference in a true elite mahomes level quarterback and a dak prescott quarterback when you find yourself in these situations a truly elite quarterback will win more of those games than he loses whereas a very good quarterback like dak it's more of a 50-50 proposition because, you know, you can go back and Dak Prescott has won some big games on the road in recent years that you don't remember because they led to bigger moments later on in the season. Like, you know, a couple of years, I mean, the like the, the win, you know, uh, Minnesota when they destroyed them uh, up right. there. Minnesota only lost one game. They were the hottest team in the league and they took him out of it. But you don't really remember after that, then you're not able to build on it after that. Hey, if you, if you come back to a play where Schoonmaker makes a play late in the season that wins a game, um, and we can point back to this as a learning yeah. opportunity, is a great. Um, I, I just, if not, it's a squandered opportunity, right? I, but I also think, as we sit here, I think all of us would have said going into this season that the Cowboys are probably going to lose at Philadelphia on the road. I know Kevin's point is they had a winnable game at the end. I'm also also now trying to view everything through this prism of a team that shouldn't have won 11 straight playoff games and had a bad bullpen and won a World Series. Yeah, what exactly. What can we take out of these games that can be applied later on that can be valuable? Well, I, I, uh, uh, just one more thing on that because then I do want to kind of switch over here. But, uh, yeah, I think there's, there's no question that the Cowboys uh, are still lacking that ability to kick over. And it always seems to be, as Dak says, a learning thing. It's like, Dak, you've been in the league a long time now. Uh, it's not about learning. It's about executing in these moments, you know? Absolutely. It's about it's getting not getting it done. The learning curve is over. We've, we've curved out of the learning curve here. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things here I want to talk about, David. One, uh, because you talked about the defense in your column after the game, and and in that game they, they did give up too many points to the Eagles and let them do what they did. But the, the difference for me was at the end of the game when they needed to come up big, they came up big. Uh, they stopped the Eagles on a couple of possessions and uh, and kept them from getting back into the game at that point. And that's kind of what we want them to do, right? You you, you make up for everything, all the errors that you make and everything else that you do wrong, uh, you, you know, to, to get to a certain point, you know, that, that tends to get lost a little bit when you come up big at the end, just like the offense, which had performed terrifically all the way through the game for, for pretty much and then gets to the very end of the game and, and stalls when it has a chance to win and doesn't. And so that's what that's what happens with that. But yeah, the- but let, let's put let's put that into context too, though, because the the defense is the acknowledged strength of this team. Everyone no says it. The players have talked about wanting to be known as an elite defense. Have thrown out like the the Bears defenses and Ravens defenses of old, as far as a as a standard. The Seattle defenses to to shoot toward. Um, and yes, in the fourth quarter, Philadelphia had three possessions. Three three and outs. I think they had like total of fourteen yards. You look at that and you go, "Well, you can't blame this defense. They they gave this team every opportunity to win." Okay, well, let's go back to the third quarter. 
Dallas has a lead on the road going into the third quarter. What does the strength of the team do? They allow Philadelphia to score 14 points, 17 plays for 149 yards on two possessions, consuming 11.56 of the quarter. 11.56 of the 15 minutes of the third quarter was the defense was unable to get Philadelphia off the field. So they turn a winnable game into one where the offense has to chase the rest of the way and, and creates these you know moments where uh, you're, you're right on the on the razor's edge for the entire fourth quarter. So uh, I don't think the defense should be let off the hook of this game at all. Yes, they they gave the team a chance to win in the fourth quarter. They also put this team in a hole, uh, a too deep of a hole going into the fourth quarter. Well, I'm, I'm not letting anybody off the hook, David. I'm not letting either one of you guys off well, the good, hook. Good, don't. <laughs> I mean, that is the deal with the Cowboys. I mean, we're, we are talking about a team that is not a dominant team, right? Dominant teams yeah. will Just go out and win these good enough here, but not there. Yeah. yeah. That that is, I, mean, I will say this. There, there are no dominant teams in the NFL anymore, though. So that that's that's part of the issue, too. Everybody's got some flaws, and we've seen that. We thought that 49ers still, were the Cowboys great. still aren't top tier. You even – well, they're 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 close. So it's like David says in the NFC, it's those two teams, and then the Cowboys are underneath that, and they and they show that they're close to the Eagles. I mean, I thought that you know, it, it, you know, there are no moral victories, uh, but you know, you you showed that you're you're in the same neighborhood. You know, after the after the 49ers game, you'd have thought, oh my gosh, they're not on the same planet. And look, the, the, the Niners the have stumbled teams. lately, right? I mean, the Niners yeah. have stumbled. Yeah, I don't know what's happened to Brock Purdy. Uh, you know, Jason Garrett. Been. Jason Garrett says that they're putting too much on on Brock Purdy, and and they need to go back to what their identity is, which is running the ball and defense. Now, I want to say that about the Cowboys before we get out of here. What's happened to the running game of the Cowboys? You know, this was supposed to be what what Mike McCarthy wanted in this Texas Coast offense, you know, or as as Evan calls it, the Texas Toast offense, uh, is that they're supposed to run the ball well. They're not running the ball well. Now, uh, what we're seeing from Tony Pollard is he's averaging four yards a carry. It was just a career low for him. So what's, what's happened, David? Yeah, and, and I just looked at the numbers. Uh, just compare it to last season. Um, through eight games last year, Pollard had 81 carries for 506 yards and five touchdowns. Through six games – through excuse me, through eight games this year, 120 carries for 474 yards and two touchdowns. Less and from, more with less, right? Yeah. yeah so that's 39 more, more, more carries. Yeah. yeah, 39 more carries for fewer yards. Less than half of the touchdowns he scored at this point last year. And you want to extrapolate that out over the last five. He actually got off to a pretty good start. Last five games, he's averaging 41 yards rushing on the ground. Um, the, the, the run game is they have not been able to establish it. A lot of that are issues in the offensive line. But uh, the, the thing that made Tony Pollard special was his burst. Uh, you haven't seen that. Uh, you know, he, had, uh, he hasn't had a run, a long run, over these last five games. So this is the difference. Tony Pollard would have these games in the past, but everyone would focus on, well, he should get the ball more. Why is Ezekiel Elliott getting it so much? But that also, he was a luxury not a necessity in some ways, and now he is a necessity, and you're seeing why he has never been a lead back in the league. But the, and this is why I've always, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a, a Zeke fan, 
but I always thought, and this is, I'm going to show my, my football ignorance here, but I always thought Pollard was so effective kind of as a change of pace back. Sure. You know? um, and if you're talking about burst, your burst is going to be better when you're not having to carry the primary workload of, exactly. of, of the yeah. everyday back. So um, I, those are the... Those are the flaws that you get into. Now, I mean, they they wagered that Tony Pollard could do this, could do what he was doing last year and more in the role of the primary ball carrier. And did not use a draft pick to supplement him and give them a more, uh, you know, talented one-two punch here than, than what they've had. You know, now you have people saying, well, why didn't Rico Dowdle get the ball more? So, and I like Rico Dowdle, but you mean Rico Dowdle, the 25-year-old back who has 149 career rushing yards. It, it'll so be the same that way is not if, the option. Yeah. If Evan Carter gets off to a 175 batting average in April, people will be saying, where's Wyatt Langford? It's always sure. it's always who's next. It doesn't matter. Sure. Exactly. Well, there's no question in my mind that they uh, went into this uh, season without taking into consideration what they wanted to do. Did they have the personnel for that? They did not have a, a – if you're going to have Tony Pollard as your lead back, you've got to have a banger as a guy that can compliment him. And they don't have that on this roster. It's a bunch of small guys. I, I compare them to Russian nesting dolls. They get smaller as you go backwards. You know, it, it's just – Did it's you call not, them rushing nesting dolls? That's what I said, yeah. It's like that was good. The other. Yeah, it's not that? Russian nesting dolls, but rushing nesting dolls. Get it? That was oh, good. I, like oh, I get it. That's good. Right? He's trying to help you. He's trying to tweak your point. Kevin. Yeah, he is. He is trying to get there. That's very good. Uh, and the same to me, the same thing with the wide receivers. If, if you're going to be, if you're trying, if your model is more or less what the 49ers are doing, then you got to have personnel like the 49ers have. You know, uh, they got Debo Samuel. They got. They got big, powerful people there. Now, Christian McCaffrey doesn't exactly capture that kind of element, but he's so good, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can do with him whatever you want to do. Oh, so, enough anyway. on the Cowboys. Let's talk about the Rangers. Please. Yeah, that's right. Get it out of the Cowboys. That's going to do it for our Cowboys segment. Uh, we're going to talk about the world champion Rangers. I'm not going to call them the Texas Rangers anymore. It's going to be the world champion Rangers. How about that, Evan? It's hard to, it's hard to say and even think about, it, isn't it? It is. It was... Um... Friday was was surreal to go out to the park and see the Valley of Stadiums, as I guess we like to call them now, the Valley of Champions, just lined with people, 10, 15 people deep, all the way for three miles, um, and, and to see the kind of crowd. Of course, I did, Kevin, from one of our favorite emailers, Ron Svetkoff. Oh, I did get, no. I did get an email that... After the Rangers won the World Series and after he had called me the worst beat writer in America over and over this year, he did let me know that I overestimated a crowd. Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I, I mean, their estimates were between 400 and 700,000 people out there. And based on what I saw in the sea, the parking lot after the parade and as everybody moved over into the Texas Live parking lot for the... Uh, for the presentation, as it were, um, it was just a sea of people, and it was electrifying. You know, it was just it, it was it was an outstanding moment for the Texas Rangers franchise and their fans. Yeah, I got called off of that at the last minute to to do uh, the forward to the to the book that we're we're putting out here. I guess we should hawk that, right? Uh, and so I, I didn't mind not going out there because I knew that was going to be a real zoo uh, to, to weather all that. My youngest son did go. He 
he he registered a, a small complaint saying that you know that a, a truck would go by with a ranger in it, and then it'd be ten minutes later before another one would go by. This, this a was a common truck, and I can let me just assure all fans that the second time around that the Rangers host the world championship <laughs> race, they'll have all this fixed. Um, yeah, fifty years from now, that will all be in, in uh, hovermobiles. They won't oh, even um, But I, I, yeah, I, it was a common it was a common complaint from people. You know, I do remember watching a little bit of the Braves parade, and I don't know what their route was like when they when they won two years ago. But they had a bunch of players stuffed into a couple of different buses. This was a single player in just about every truck, and. There were even some people who thought, well, they were just swapping out. They didn't have 40 trucks or whatever. They were just swapping out trucks as the route completed. I, I don't know. that. I think that was the one complaint that a, that, that a few people had. And, and my guess is that, that players probably also would have liked to have been grouped together and to have more interaction with one another. But yeah. they'll be happy. Again, they will be happy to fix this issue for the next championship parade. Yeah, no question about that. I got to tell you, that you know, for covering championship games, actually being there on the spot, uh, I, I'm thinking about the uh, well, the, the Cowboys Super Bowls. I guess I was there for all of those, uh, and but those didn't feel, you know, so uh, earth shattering as that. When I was there, when when Texas won the national championship, and Vince Young went in the end zone, and I remember thinking, I I couldn't believe it. Texas has won. It just it just seemed. Unbelievable. A, a little bit of the same feeling watching that. Uh, and I don't know why it affected me so much that way. But Josh Spores throws that curveball. You know, who throws a curveball anymore? You know, n- nobody, especially it, it, not for an out pitch. And that thing just comes in like a tomahawk and and uh, and uh, it freezes Cattell Marte. And, and the game is over. And it's like, wow, that's it. It is over. They have actually won this. It was and I asked him about that on Friday at the parade. I was like, you know, you're, you kind of walked off the mound and like you were almost getting ready to get the ball back. And then you spiked the glove. And he said, yeah, I, I, a, I wasn't sure that it was a strike and B, it wasn't a very good pitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was a pretty, I thought it was a pretty great pitch. It just took a lot of nerve to throw a curveball in that situation. I, you just never see that anymore. Uh, people will mix in a curve every once in a while, but not, not for the out pitch for, for the winning the World Series. I, 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 give, I bet that hadn't happened five times. I will give one quick Spores story here before we get out of Spores talk. But um, on September 5th or 6th, one of the last games against the Astros here, he got absolutely lit up. And it had completed like a three-week span in which he had an ERA of, I think it was 23. And I had a tweet at that point in time that said, Josh Spores allows five runs and two-thirds of an inning, blah, 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 blah. This will probably be his last game. And he mentioned to me on Friday, he said, oh, I got a question for you. And he brought up the tweet. And I was like, yeah, I know. And I'm happy to be wrong. He goes, well, you know what's funny is, like, after the game, I had texted my wife, this will probably be my last game here. (laughs) Yeah, he turned into one of my favorite guys to talk to in the clubhouse. Uh, a very bright guy, very uh, he really into. You could ask him about anything. He had, you know, uh, some thoughts about it, well regarded, and and, uh, and thoughtful comments about things. And so, uh, I, I tell you what, and he had, I thought he had the funniest the funniest quote of the of the World Series run when I asked him about hot dogs, Creed, and playing cards, and he said, "What can I say? We're a strange group." 
Yeah, they are that. Uh, and I thought he rose to the to the obviously you get the last seven outs of the World Series here. Did we ever find out what the deal was with Jose Leclerc? He was he was a little bit sore, um, and I think that they felt, look, we've got a five run lead here. Spores is pitching well. We don't need to, you know, we if, if we absolutely have to, then we'll, we'll make a decision. But they could they could afford to roll with Spores in that situation, and it was. I think the third time in the last 30 years, 35 years, that you'd had a guy close out a clinching game with at least seven outs, pick up a save with, with at least seven outs. The other two were Madison Bumgarner and, and Julio Rios, starters in that situation. Josh Spores had one career save, postseason, regular season, one career save. One out rolled seven consecutive rolled seven outs in that situation. He, he stepped up big. He stepped up big all postseason. And it is, you know, if you get two or three guys in your bullpen on a roll, um, it really doesn't matter what your overall numbers were as as a relief core during the regular season. The Rangers proved that with Leclerc and, and Sports. Yeah, no question about that. I do think Smores has elevated himself into the conversation as a potential closer at some point. Uh, this, this is kind of the course of a lot of guys. They, they work their way up through the bullpen, and uh, he's got the stuff for it. They've always believed that, even when he was shaky earlier this year. And and, that, and frankly, I'm with you. There were times this year I thought, oh, this, this guy doesn't have it. And then, then we find out, yeah, he was hurt a little bit at times, and then you know lost his confidence at, at times, but really bounced back. Hey, All right, also is a good transition. Yeah, true, true that. All right, yes. Have either yes, of please. you ever seen a team after a regular season that reinforced what they weren't able to do to achieve at such a high and consistent level in the postseason? I'm having a hard time thinking of any. I mean, usually when trends are established over that long of a period. You just don't see, uh, uh, you know, you just don't flip the switch. And, and they did on, on road games and also the, the bullpen. It was, uh, it, it's just remarkable. I mean, it's such a, to me, it defies description almost. It, it really, really is. I mean, it, it, it did. I mean, in the, the 11 consecutive road games, that may never, that may never get topped. Um, it's almost impossible to top it, quite frankly. Um, it was, it was a tremendous effort on that end. I think that, you know, you go into the playoffs, you usually say teams with weak bullpens are going to be in real trouble. And that was that was a concern about this Rangers team going into the postseason. But they were able to move some starters back there. Um, that That's part of why they went out and got both Montgomery and Scherzer at the deadline, thinking that it would allow them to move a couple of guys into the bullpen. And we saw guys like Andrew Heaney and Dane Dunning really step up in the playoffs and work out. I, I, I have and to John say. Gray. John Gray as well, yeah. Um, I, I have to say that, look, I mean, I, I feel like the way Chris Young calculated this roster and the way he manipulated it and the way he put it together to allow for it to kind of flex itself during the postseason, I thought was tremendous. I thought it was tremendous. Um, there were there were times when I, I questioned about the, the construction of the roster during the regular season it all played out in the playoffs the way I think they envisioned it. Yeah, I think the, the to, to David's point about uh, what happened here, I thought this was a, a classic example of a of a of a team 
we, we talked all year long about their resiliency and that got to be kind of a cliche. I got even tired of the whole thing. I, I got tired of writing it. Uh, and yet they were extremely mentally tough. Uh, and they, they didn't allow themselves to be pushed into a corner very often in the playoffs. They, they were able to avoid situations that had kind of perplexed them during the regular season at times. Uh, and they always, Seem to keep the upper hand. I, I wrote that in the World Series, the first two games, the uh, you know the Diamondbacks clearly uh, kind of exerted their will and played their kind of ball, even though those those games were split because of the Ranger heroics at the end of the of Game One. But the first two games was they they were playing you know Diamondbacks ball, uh, but then from that point on they played Rangers ball, you know, in in three through five, you know, and so. Uh, they and that was on the road at their place. They just they just exerted their will on people. And I have to say, I, I really think the difference. If I had to just say one thing, what is what was different about this club and winning a World Series and the two that did not in 2010 and 2011? To me, it just comes back to the fact that you had a World Series MVP who had been a World Series MVP with the Dodgers uh, in Corey Seager. You had a uh, a starting pitcher who was your best pitcher in the postseason, who had won a World Series with the Red Sox and been a very viable contributor to that. And then you had a manager who had won three World Series and been to four of them. Uh, and and those those three guys were the three biggest contributors in the World Series itself. Uh, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Those 2010 and 2011 teams didn't have any of that. Didn't have any guys who had won anything. And I think, you know, you can talk all you want to about what you've done over the course of a season and how well you've played and how good you are. And there were a lot of really good players on those 2010 and 11 teams. But still, when it comes right down to it, you got to know that there's somebody here who has done this, who's been here and done this. It's, it's a lot easier for Josh Young to be a terrific rookie when the guy playing to his left has been a World Series MVP, and he knows that. You know, it's hard to quantify any of that stuff, but it's certainly worth it. it it's certainly, it, it's certainly valid. And uh, to your point, Kevin, I mean, we looked at the way Bruce Bochy handled pitching, what he did when he needed to do it with, um, with the guys he had on the roster. Uh, it was, I thought it was just a, a textbook course in how you manage postseason baseball. And I, but I do think one thing that we we do need to mention is. This team did some inadvertent workload management over the course of the season, and I think for that long that long playoff run, they had a lot of fresh players, um, yeah. and I think that that's a big difference too. Yeah, and, and speaking of that, uh, Evan, we're going to talk a little bit now about because the Rangers are obviously in uh, they're they're fresh into you know the hot stove league and trying to figure out what to do and how they're going to put together a roster for next year. I don't imagine it will be very different from this year, but to uh, uh, so to so your point, uh, I think it was a, it was great for Adolis Garcia to have had that. Uh, how many games did he miss? Eleven games. How many was that? Uh, 11 games uh, with that knee problem uh, because he was really struggling at that point. Uh, and he got to sit down when he came back, he had a little bit of a struggle and then he was terrific. And then of course in the playoffs, he was unbelievable. In ALCS, he was, he was a monster. Um, I think that next year, if they could uh, pull off something in which he was, uh, they would roll him through the DH slot at least once a week, uh, give him a, a, off his feet for, for a game. 
Uh, I think that'd be great. I don't know how much that would bother him because, you know, he just won a gold glove. And, uh, you know, I know that Dulles is a very emotional guy and he probably would think he wants to be out there in right field all the time. Uh, but I think it would be really good for him uh, over the course of a season not to be playing that much. And if, say, you know, I don't know, if a Wyatt Langford was playing left field uh, and uh, and Evan Carter was in center, and maybe if you traded Leody Tavares for, to shore up your, your bullpen a little bit more, uh, then that would allow you to, to to run Wyatt Langford through the DA spot too. But that's something we well, can talk even about. If you don't, even if you don't trade Leody, who um, you could certainly go with that four outfield mix with one of those guys <laughs> rotating through DH every fourth day with the possibility of once a week Corey Seager getting a DH day, which I think is going to be important. And I think Marcus Simeon is going to have to take a few days off over the course of the season as well, at least from the field, because what we saw – you know, until those last two games of the, of the postseason was we saw Marcus Simeon that looked like he was he, he was fatigued and he should have been. He set a, a, a major league record for most plate appearances in a calendar year. Yeah, no question about that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen now. Uh, Evan, kind of update us on the contract status of people who, who exercise their club options. Andrew Heaney did, obviously, and the club exercised its option on Jose Leclerc. Uh, what's coming up on anybody else? Well, the the no, there's no more options. But Mitch Garver was not tendered a, uh, a qualifying offer, which is not surprising. That's I believe it was 19.6 million dollars. Uh, he made six, I think, this past year. So he wasn't going to jump to that. He's a free agent. Jordan Montgomery is obviously a free agent. Araldus Chapman is a free agent. There are some other minor free agents like Jan Cow. Uh, Rex, Robbie Grossman and uh, Jankowski, I believe, and, uh, you know, guys who didn't play, like Brad Miller and so forth. Um, but the Rangers, Martin Perez? Is he, Martin is Perez he not, is the other one, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I, what's going to be incumbent upon the Rangers right now is to figure out, look, the bullpen still is a body or two short, and that's their that, – that and probably the idea of reinforcing this rotation even more – because I don't think Jack Leiter is going to be in a position to help this team, at, certainly not at the beginning of the year. Obviously, Kamar Rocker's not. Jacob deGrom's not. I don't think Owen White is. So you could use another starter to – I don't think you can go into the season expecting that you're going to get – would you end up getting about 170 innings out of Nathan Avaldi between regular and postseason? Same thing with a lot of those other guys. If you want to make another run – another deep run, you're going to have to manage those pitchers or at least plan for some of those guys to miss some time. And so we go back to talking about cliches, Chris Young's favorite, you can never have enough starting pitching. No, there's no question about that. I, I do think they need to uh, to try to re-sign Jordan Montgomery. I think that's going to be next to impossible because his agent is Scott Boris, and Scott Boris has a long history of taking his uh, clients elsewhere. Um, I thought that Montgomery obviously was very good this year. I got to say, he kind of mystified me a little bit at the end. I, I, you know, asking him questions, I don't think he's comfortable talking to the media. Uh, it was hard to tell how he really felt at times, if he was uh, miffed that he did get opportunities that he really wanted or, or how much he, he, you know, he really liked what he was being asked to do at times. There was no question, uh, no doubting what he did for that team. You know, uh, it's a lot like the Cliff Lee trade. Uh, they don't make it to the World Series without Jordan Montgomery. 
you know, and I, I think that uh, yeah, I mean, the rotation throughout the playoffs that what that got them to the World Series was Montgomery and Abaldi. I mean, that was it. Yeah, absolutely. So you can't uh, you, you can't overestimate what he did for the team. Uh, it's a question now of, of what you, he's going to get going forward, obviously. And so that's that's the situation. You got a lot of money already committed to the rotation, uh, and guys who aren't going to be pitching like Jacob Degrom. Uh, you know, it, it, I would guess now, uh, Evan. So the the rotation would line up this way. Now would be Avaldi, Scherzer, and then and then who you got? Gray. Number three. Gray be your number I mean, three. You know, Gray Dunning, I, I get it, and that makes sense to do that. And and uh, I, I got to tell you, I was so impressed with John Gray as a reliever, as a multi-inning reliever. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the problem for him has always been he, he has a really plus two-pitch mix, fastball slider. He doesn't have a refined third pitch. That's really hurt him as a starter. But as a reliever, it is just wipeout stuff. I, I thought that the, I thought the series kind of turned on his performance, frankly, uh, because when he came in, he just turned the lights out on on Arizona. Uh, and uh, you know, I don't know that there's a way to make convince him that he could be the next Andrew Miller. I don't know that he, if his ego can allow that. I don't know if he's making too much money uh, to to, ha- to be performing in that role. I don't, I don't know. I don't know, but but Dunning and Heaney, both of whom would probably figure into the rotation at this point in time to give you a five man rotation. Certainly, they're they're if if you were able to get out, go out and get another starter or two. Yeah, there's some some thought. Hey, should we explore this? I do think I think when it's all said and done, I think the Rangers are going to have to explore the trade for a controllable young starter uh, scenario. That is obviously a difficult trick to pull off and to do it. You're going to have to consider the possibility of trading somebody like Tavares or Ezekiel Duran or both of them. Um, maybe even maybe even consider somebody like Nathaniel Lowe, though I'm not sure I'm ready to give up a, gold, a silver slugger winning first baseman one year and a gold glove winner the next. But you're going to have to trade somebody, something – to get something, and that that's something the Rangers will have to consider as this offseason starts. Yeah, no question about that. All right, that's going to do it for our uh, Rangers segment of the podcast. It's fun talking about a team that's actually won something. Uh, we're going to talk about, just briefly here in our little potpourri segment, we're going to talk about the Mavericks off to a really hot start, David. Uh, and uh, so far, it all seemed to turn – on when Derek Lively was inserted into the lineup as a starter, uh, you know the we talked about earlier about the first game against the Spurs and how terrible they looked in the first quarter, and then in the second half when they started Derek Lively, everything seemed to click. Uh, but not only has that clicked and and a rotation starting to settle in, uh, but we're also seeing the the Mavericks get out of Kyrie Irving and uh, Luka Doncic in the fourth quarter what they always said they thought they could get, which last year seemed impossible. Yeah. And you know, this, it, and I was struck Kyrie Irving after the game last night said when he signed here, he knew his role was going to be a little different than the role he had in the past. Uh, but it was also basically, I'm still going to be there at the end of games and, and I'm going to be a part of this. And, and you saw that last night. You saw, uh, again, they came from 15 down at one point. I think the first time in their history, they've been down by 12 in the fourth quarter and back-to-back games and come back to win them. Uh, and you saw 
uh, Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving sharing the ball in different possessions down the stretch, one feeding the other to get big baskets. And that's just what you didn't see last year. Um, and look, if, if they weren't going to be able to do that, why should they be together? <laughs> you know, right. I mean, exactly. they, these are two of the better players in the league. They can figure it out. They know that last year they just didn't have time. One or the other was off the court with an injury, it seemed. So they, they weren't able to get that. The, the trade came late in the season. Uh, but I think what you're, I mean, look, this is the, what ties for the second best start in Mavericks history at six and one. Uh, I believe Denver's the only team in the West with a better record at the moment. Uh, still very early in an 82-game season. You're only uh, seven games in. But it reinforces that they acknowledged how they needed to build this team around Luka and Kyrie Irving in a way that we never saw last year, right? That just seemed mixed, you know, mix and match parts last year and it never came together. They got off to a slow start. We're never able to work through it. Um, you're seeing Luca come back in better shape than he started a Maverick season before he's acknowledging as he gets older, his obligations. And it's not, it's, you know, it's not enough just to play your way into shape. You need to be into shape when it starts. So you're seeing a different Luca Doncic to start this season. Uh, him and Kyrie, at least at this stage, appear very committed to making this work and uh, acknowledging how one can assist the other and the other doesn't have to carry the load for such long amounts of time. Uh, any two great players, that's always going to be uh, – you're always kind of finding that balance, right? And it's going to change over the course of the season. We'll see it change during different periods. But they, they seem to do be a good job of sharing the ball now, sharing responsibilities. Kyrie is accepting that Luca is the main guy on this team. Uh, it's about as encouraging of a start as you can get off to, I would say. Well, one of the other things that struck me, too, in Brad Townsend's uh, game story, he talked about uh, the fact that uh, at some point during the game, I can't remember exactly when it was. It might have been at halftime. Maybe it was before the game. I don't remember. Uh, that five guys spoke – about what they needed to do. And none of those five guys was Kyrie Irving or uh, Luka Doncic. They were all, it was Tim Hardaway Jr. It was, uh, it was Seth Curry. It was, uh, it was several guys. And I thought that was a very good sign that these guys, some of them, now Seth Curry's been here before, but the other guys were all, and, and, and if, if Hardaway was one of those guys, he's been here before, but, but the rest of them were all new guys and, and new to the roster. And, you know, uh, I think that's a really good sign if that's what they're getting from that. Cause I'm not always sure uh, exactly how the team responds to what Luca might say. I don't know how uh, demonstrative Luca is, off the floor, we know what he's like on the floor, right? Uh, and maybe sometimes a little too much, you know? And, and so uh, I, I think these are all really encouraging signs for the Mavericks. I'd be surprised if uh, they aren't able to put something together now because it, it, it doesn't seem like a flukish thing, you know? All the all the things they did, they, they brought in all these long, rangy kind of guys to, to change the defense and so they could play much better defense around those uh, that, that core, and, it's, and it all seems to be working. You know, and, you know, that's kind of what when they made that playoff run two years ago, it was because of their defense. They, they were playing really good defense then. And then that that chemistry and that formula wore out and it just didn't work last year. And that's why they made the big trade and got Kyrie Irving and got rid of Dorian Finney-Smith and, uh, and Spencer Dinwiddie. 
Well, I think Luca acknowledges too, you know, Kyrie Irving is at his best in a more fast-paced game. Luca is at his best at his pace of a game, which is not slow. It's not fast. It's just a it's him dictating the situation. He has such an outstanding feel for the game. But it's a pace that doesn't fit anyone else, right? So I, I think he's acknowledging, though, at times, and he saw it last year when he was off the court, hey, this team can run. Get out and run here. We have some guys who are better at that. So why don't I step back and run and force the action at this part of the game where it's more of a Kyrie? Uh, you know, the, the the NBA is is about flows and streaks. It, it, it's not it's not some of the stop and start action that you have in the other sports. And um, it's about riding a wave when you have it, stepping back, and you, you can't be constantly one way. And uh, I, I think early in the season, it's been very encouraging to see them go back and forth between pushing it more and saying, okay, well, no, in this moment, this is, you know, these next five, six minutes here, this is this is Luca getting his pace, getting his rhythm, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. You need to be able to do both. Uh, yeah, and and that, nobody goes slow better than they do because nobody oh. is better uh, slow than, than Luca is. But, uh, but yeah, I, I agree. That's how you get everybody else involved and, and get everybody part of the program. All right, we're going to shift over and talk a little college football now. Uh, Texas is the Big 12's last best hope uh, for the college football playoff. I, I've downgraded their chances from one, at one point, which were excellent, to just pretty good right now. The biggest problem for Texas is that, uh, of course, they're seventh. you got Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, Washington, Florida State, and Oregon in front of the Longhorns. Obviously, at some point, uh, uh, Georgia – well, Georgia will probably just uh, win out and make the playoff would be my guess. Got Ohio State and Michigan. One of them will knock out the other. Uh, and then Washington and Oregon, one of those will knock out the other. Uh, but the problem is that Florida State's in there. And who's going to knock off Florida State? So you, you've got too many conferences stacked up there. It's going to take something, a little extra help uh, for Texas to make it into the playoffs uh, this year. Um, through no fault of their own, really, they, they've played pretty well without Quinn Ewers the last two games. Uh, Malik Murphy has stepped in and done a good job. Uh, now we are being told by Steve Sarkeesian that um, there's a – that Quinn Ewers is day-to-day. It just depends on how he feels. Uh, Texas will play TCU in Fort Worth on Saturday. I'll be out there for that game. I'll be interested to see if Ewers uh, comes back. I would I would assume he probably will for that game if he's just day-to-day and, and there's not a, a real issue at this point, just maybe a little bit of pain management, if nothing else. Uh, it would be good to get him on the field and to see what Texas can do. Uh, TCU is going through a pretty, uh, well, uh, let's just say a, a bad season coming off the national championship game, just four and five, uh, a very disappointing season for the Horn Frogs. I wouldn't expect that they would offer much resistance to Texas, but it'd be good for the Longhorns to get him back out there at this point. I don't, I don't know what Texas can do to, to build a much better case at now at this point. Didn't help Texas that Oklahoma lost to Oklahoma State uh, in Bedlam. Uh, that was a, a great game, a lot of fun to watch. Uh, but uh, it would have been better for Texas' case if the one team that had beaten them was still on the running for the college football playoff. 
so now we'll, we'll see what Texas can do. They'll probably end up playing either, I would imagine, Oklahoma State in the uh, Big 12 championship game in December. Um, they need they, they still own, as Steve Sarkeesian tells everybody, the best win in the country, beating Alabama and Tuscaloosa. Uh, the Crimson Tide has, has really uh, risen, as we as you might like to say, by the tide. <laughs> um, and they're playing very well now. Uh, so that, that win looks better all the time. But I just don't know how they jump uh, some of these teams unless they get a big uh, – unless one of those teams really stumbles. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out at this point. You boys got any bets on the CFP at this point? I don't. Do we have? Is there a line on Jimbo Fisher remaining the A and M coach at the end of the season? Yeah, there's a there's a line about a mile long uh, <laughs> of people who who would like to see uh, Jimbo Fisher fired. The, the problem is, I think as as it is now, he's owed about seventy five million dollars. Who's going to come up with that money uh, to, to pay that off? Um, you know, that has not worked out well. There's no question about that. I got to tell you, I was, I'm was i still stunned that, that Jimbo has not won more than he has. I, I thought that he would be a difference maker coming off. You know, he, he won a national championship at Florida State. If you can win that there, you ought to be able to be a pretty good coach at Texas A&M with all the resources that the Aggies have. And just hasn't happened. He's no better than Kevin Sumlin. I think at this point he may be behind Kevin Sumlin. And uh, his performance. So, is this program uh, in any better shape now than it was, say, two years ago? No, they're worse. Two years yeah. ago, they were pretty good. You know, during yeah. the pandemic, they were they were that was his one shining season. Was it during the pandemic? And and who knows how to judge any of that yeah, stuff, right? I and what happened? I something this weekend that through the same number of games, I thought someone had two more wins. It, it, Kevin Sumlin's record really fell off at the end, and so that's what probably is there. He, you know, he was famous for the eight-win seasons, right? Kind of like, uh, kind of like Jason Garrett at one point. Um, yeah, they're they're not any better. They have they've recruited some really great classes. It just hasn't transferred to the field, you know. It, uh, and I thought that I thought maybe if Bobby Petrino coming in that would make a difference. You know, it, it did it didn't help the Aggies at Connor Wegman, their quarterback, and it was really good, got hurt, and they gone with Max Johnson. But it's not like Max Johnson is a terrible quarterback either. He's as good a backup as just about anybody has in the country. He's he's a pretty nice player. Uh, they, they're just still not playing well. They don't play well enough defensively, uh, and that, that should be one of their calling cards because some of the players that they signed in those classes were – one of them was the number one player in the country, a defensive tackle, uh, Nolan. So – that, that just – it just hasn't happened. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, it has made football uh, in Texas, college football in Texas, a little unattractive, you know, because what you've got is, is Texas has played very well. Steve Sarkeesian has has roused that program. He's done more for it this year than I thought uh, he would uh, coming off of the way they played last year. What talent evaluators will tell you is that, well, it's, it's simply a matter of the fact that they – They've recruited a lot of great players that they're going to have maybe 10 players drafted off of this team. And when's the last time that happened? That hadn't happened in Texas ever in a seven-round draft that they would have that many players drafted. So they, they do have a lot of talent, and, and and he is maximizing that talent, unlike what Jimbo Fisher is doing at Texas A&M. And that is galling Aggies no end that, that to see that we've got these great classes and we're not winning. You know, It's one thing to be – 
playing in the in the SEC, it's the toughest conference in the country. There's no question about that. But it's better than third in the West this year, and that's going to be another year where they didn't finish any better than third. And next year, we all know it gets tougher. Absolutely, it gets tougher. And the thing is, it wasn't like the the SEC was just indomitable this year. There were, you know, the teams are still good. There's no question about that. But they're not as good as they have been, I don't believe. I don't, you know, Georgia's not as good as it has been the last couple of years. Alabama's not as good. LSU is not as good. They're all good, but they're not like, oh my gosh, how do you even begin I to compete the with these teams? teams? Have been a little bit better, and I think the top tier teams have been a little bit worse. Um, but that makes it that should make it right for somebody to post a big upset, and it just hadn't happened for A and M. No. And 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 I and I don't know what what happens here from here on. I would guess after next year uh, that you know as the buyout becomes a little less, I would guess if he has another year next year like this one that 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 Jimbo will get fired. I think at that point it'll be too much, it'll, too much will have piled up, especially with Texas and the SEC. Once once Texas is in the SEC and if they're playing well, that will just electrify the, the situation for for Jimbo he'll just be in so much trouble he can't possibly get out of it if he if he can't uh beat Texas next year in the SEC that'll be it they might fire him at midseason I mean I, I, I don't know where they fall on the, on, on the schedule uh but that would that, that might be a a, a a deal killer right there all right, boys, I think that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We appreciate you taking the time and stopping by. Uh, we had a lot of fun things to talk about, and then some things that weren't so fun, but that's all right. That's what we do. So from everybody in here to everybody. That was like something my grandpa would say. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, yeah. I'm kind of like your, I'm kind of like your grandpa. So maybe Mr. Rogers. Well, kids, we had some fun things to talk about, some things that weren't so fun. You know, uh, I'm I'm like the Mister Rogers of this group. You know, I got I got you, Eeyore, and I'm Mister Rogers. We need to come up with something for David. I don't know exactly how where David fits in on that, but I thought I was more nice like sweater you're wearing today, by the way, too. <laughs> we'll switch back out of my my tennis shoes into my my hard shoes, like Mister Rogers always did on his way out the door. All right, so from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.